turn to the 11th chapter of Matthew. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11. There's all kinds of talk nowadays in our days about something called social justice, right? Probably most of us have heard this term. In American evangelicalism in particular, it's become a major theme, and it's an important thing to talk about because over these last few months, before we begin our Advent series and before we pick up with Romans again in January, that's where we've been. And the entire book of Romans is about justification, right? How uh, God justifies ungodly people, putting them into a right relationship with Himself, by grace through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now the question, and a significant one for the Christmas season, as it's rightly thought of as the season of giving and rejoicing and all these types of things we associate rightly with the coming of Christ, the question is, is the message of justification all the church has for the world? Or to put it another way, is that enough for the world? Is the message of the gospel that God justifies ungodly people through His Son, is that enough? Or does the world need more from us? Or should the church understand its primary role in the world as bringing justice to our whole society, to the world at large, until there's justice and equity everywhere? To help answer this or think through it, we'll return to another episode in the life of John the Baptist this morning, this time in Matthew 11. Does the coming of the Lord mean? So when you hear Isaiah 35 and it's clear that the coming of Jesus brings rejoicing, why should we be rejoicing? What is there to rejoice about when the world looks so dark? Does the coming of the Lord mean that society and our cultures on earth will become just here and now on the earth for all people? Does the gospel promise to bring equity according to the law on earth? Or is the reason the coming of Jesus brings rejoicing something much different and something much better? Let's pray and we'll begin. Father, praise your holy name for your perfect word. Thank you for your risen Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, may you do something in our hearts this morning that my sermon, my words will not and cannot do. But Father, You are here in Your Word. And I pray that You would, by the power of Your Spirit, overcoming the doubts and fears of our flesh, convince us of the truth of what Jesus Christ has brought for each and every one of us. And I ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Pick it up actually in verse 2 here in Matthew 11. Now, When John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now that's interesting. Notice that he asks that because he's hearing precisely what it is that Jesus is doing. Right? Everything that Jesus is about to send back to him in just a few verses. But why doesn't what Jesus is doing convince him that he's the one? Why is it when he hears that what Jesus is doing, why does John say, now wait a minute, I thought you were the one. Why is that all you're doing? Right? 
The last time we saw John the Baptist, he was the voice of one crying in the wilderness that had been prophesied in Isaiah chapter 40, preparing the way for the coming of the Lord, telling Israel to be repented by God through the word and baptism for the forgiveness of sins. But now, as we find John, he's been put in prison for speaking out against the the promiscuity of the Roman leader's trophy wife, probably. Whether that was wise of him to do or not is for another day. But today we find out what happens to a faithful preacher of the gospel in this world. Because it appears the preacher here is used and then tossed away. Which doesn't seem very fair. But he's not tossed away like the chaff, remember. John has been in prison for obeying the will of the Lord, and this is not where he planned on being as the prophet who was the forerunner of the Messiah. This was the greatest prophet of the Old Testament era, no question. The very forerunner of the Messiah himself. How does he end up in prison where he knows he's basically waiting to die? His head is going to be served up on a platter. John's circumstances and John's destiny this morning bring us face to face with the issue of whether or not Jesus is really any good for this world and all its injustices. That question is at the root of why John sends his disciples. This man had disciples. John was a big deal. He had followers. To ask of Jesus, the one whose sandals, remember, he wasn't worthy to untie. He believed that at one moment. He thought that at one moment. To ask whether he really was the promised coming one or maybe it was someone else. And maybe we feel sometimes when we hear the attacks against the gospel, the pressure of what's behind that question. The world's um, recurring accusations, particularly now, that Christianity is irrelevant. It doesn't, allegedly doesn't address the deepest, the realest actual needs or the actual evils of society. So one of the ways the church can actually bow down to this and give in to it and be controlled by it is is to tweak how we talk about justification as if God bringing justice actually has two parts to it. The first part is, of course, in other words, this would be One way of thinking, right? The first part is, of course, that we are justified by faith. Amen. Thank God. Not by works. Right? We got that. But the other part is that, therefore, we need to be seekers of justice and become maybe even a social justice warrior, if you've heard that term, to bring about justice in society. And, of course, that's what really needs to be the focus of the church, or they won't listen to us. We're irrelevant to them. We we have no avenue in unless we're pursuing bringing this justice out into the real world. So justification by grace through faith, this wonderful message is nice for preachers, right, that like to talk about doctrine and everything, but we need to move beyond that to how the gospel changes society and how the coming of Jesus uh, brings equity and inclusion and all these kinds of things. And so that's where you, kind of behind that is where you, uh, so often now you hear this idea that, that, you know, Jesus was a refugee, and so we need to open the borders and let people in and, and all these types of things, right? Because it, would, it, it seems to make sense that the coming of Jesus ought to mean a difference in the world such as that. Not just personal salvation for individual people. That There's much more than that, right, is, is what the thinking would be. And maybe we 
hear that and think we don't have an answer for that or that we should be doing more. Psalm 146, when you hear the echoes of that text in Mary's Magnificat, for example, when she sings out in praise to God for sending Christ through her in Psalm 146.5, it reads, Happy are those whose help is the God of Jacob. So His coming brings rejoicing. Why? Well, we're going to come back to that because John the Baptist is going to be helped by the God of Jacob. Whether or not it makes him happy is another question. Psalm 146 continues in verse 7. The happy person is the one who executes justice for the oppressed. So if, if, you're, if your focus is, is social justice and righting the wrongs of the world and bringing equity and, and justice to society, that's a verse you can pull out for social justice purposes and say, look, look right there. That's, that's the only reason we have to rejoice is that we get to execute justice for the oppressed. That's what we should be doing. Well, what, what does that look like would be the question then. The psalm continues, 146 continues with those kinds of phrases that if, if, if you believe that the healing of the world by bringing justice to it is what we're supposed to be doing, these phrases might contribute to that. Who gives food to the hungry? The Lord sets the prisoner free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. So the basic idea would be that the coming of the Lord makes the oppressed happy because it means they'll now be lifted up and they'll now have equity in the world and now they'll be on top. And it makes us happy because we get to be the agents of finally bringing about justice for everybody. And that's really what we've been saved to do. This is usually called the social gospel, kind of in, in Baptist circles. I think we coined that phrase, but that's basically what the gospel is really after in that thinking when it talks about justification, ultimately the transformation of society. Here in Matthew 11, we have the servant of God, a prophet, oppressed and imprisoned unjustly by the powers that be, by the power in the world at that time, the power, the Roman Empire. So let's read the rest of the text, get it in our heads, and we'll come back to this. Pick it up in verse 4. And Jesus answered them, those John had sent, Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me, John. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. I wonder who the least in the kingdom of heaven is. And when Jesus says this, how great John is. wonder if anybody in the crowd listening to him at that moment said, well then, why is he in prison? Why is he suffering at the hands of the power of the world? John the Baptist was the voice 
again, sent to prepare the way of the Lord. So he probably thought his end was going to be a little more joyful than this. But somehow instead he's in jail. Beloved, when we end up in jail, or when we end up somewhere we did not expect we would be, if Jesus was who he said he was, our faith is going to come out. When we get pushed down, what's really inside, what we really believe, or whether we really believe, is going to come out. That is, when you're under the oppression of the world, like when the law puts you in prison for preaching, when the powers that be put you in prison for preaching, in this example, we're most likely going to respond in one of two ways. First being, this is unfair. I'm being treated unjustly. I demand my rights according to the law. That's one way. And we often respond just like that or with that type of attitude. We've been treated unfairly. We've been treated unjustly. We want justice. This is what God is supposed to do for us because we serve Him and follow Him. But John also has something else on his mind in this moment. His whole life from conception onward has been defined by his identity as the voice of the coming of the Messiah. We remember that John the Baptist, although he didn't really want to, had baptized Jesus with his baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Not the sins of Christ, but the sins of the world for whom he was dying. John has already called him the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John has done what he was called to do. He's fulfilled the purpose for which he was sent and for which he was born. But now in Matthew 11, for all that, after all that, the greatness of being prophesied of and coming and ministering and identifying the Messiah for Israel, he's sitting in Roman jail. Thinking about the Messiah. He had nothing else to do, right? And wondering if Jesus was really the Messiah after all. That's what suffering and injustice, or suffering injustice, can do to us. God, shouldn't it be different now? How in the world, if Jesus is reigning, am I a victim of the Roman reign over the world? So we're getting a glimpse into his conscience there in verse 3. Ask him, are you the one, or should we look for another? Again, notice that. Jesus is out healing people and bringing salvation to people and loving people. John is in prison. And so when John hears that that's what he's doing, John is thinking, why are you not like overthrowing Caesar? here? What Are you the Messiah or not? Get me out of here. Right? How did that question get into his conscience? John, how do you not actually know that Jesus is the Messiah. How could you of all people question that? How did, how did this get to, well, he's, he's sitting in jail. And beloved, when you have done everything you know of that God has told you to do, that you're aware of in his word, when you've been as faithful and as obedient as you know you should be, you do not expect to do jail time. You do not expect to lose. You do not expect to suffer. You do not expect your circumstances to get worse. Because what happens when we do that? God, are you the one? Or like, is, is, 
Maybe there's another God. Not that we would voice it that way, but you understand like the sentiment. Maybe I should worship somebody else. Maybe there's another person capable of running the universe because it doesn't seem like that's what you are doing. Look at me. And so there are people in the world that suffer disproportionately. Absolutely. And you, you, you could understand why many of those groups would say, your Jesus is no good for us. I don't agree with that conclusion, but maybe we could see how people, groups of people could reach that conclusion. Or just people that suffer and struggle a lot in life, because everybody does. It's just not everybody gets on the news, right? Not everybody's a part of the narrative, but everywhere people are suffering. And many are suffering because of things that are unfair and cruel and unjust. Sure, we don't deny this. That's not the point of speaking out against this this morning, as I'm, I'm going to do that idea that, that we have to add social justice to the gospel. I don't agree with that, and we'll get to that. But you, when, when you've been obedient, or you've been as good as you know to be, you expect to be lauded and praised for that. You expect health and wealth, or blessing at least, after you've done exactly what God has told you to do. Unless, of course, God really doesn't tell the truth. Unless he's not all-powerful. Maybe he's not in control of everything. Maybe he's no actual good for us or for the world after all. Sure, John the Baptist had questioned things sometimes. Remember, he didn't want to baptize the Pharisees and Sadducees. But he did. He didn't understand why in the world he would have to baptize the Messiah. But he did. And so he shouldn't be treated badly just because he'd had some questions and some moments of doubt. He... He did what he was told to do. So, so he asked, what, what's wrong here? Maybe Jesus isn't actually the Messiah after all. Maybe I misidentified him. Maybe I pointed at the wrong person. This is a confession of unbelief from the heart of the greatest man to live in the Old Covenant era. The Old Testament era. This is not what I thought was going to happen with the Messiah. Right? That is what happens when something other than the gospel promise gets up into our minds and starts to stir. That's what happens when we let anything but the gospel and the promise that has been made to us gets up in our mind in the midst of suffering and trials and darkness and start to needle away. At our hope and our confidence and our faith. What we do then is step out of gracious thinking and into the realm of law thinking. It should be this way. This happened, this should happen. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, right? Justice. Fair. Proper recognition for work. Proper recognition of my worth. And now. And it's got to look like that. Lord, you've got to get me out of the situation, take away this disease, take away this pain, take away this suffering, or I'm going to have to question whether or not you are good and you are God and you know what you're doing. When the, the cross 2,000 years ago is God's declaration to the world and to each of you individually, I love you, I am coming to save you. That's been proven. We have no basis now, none to question the goodness of God. So what's happening 
when that's happening in our minds. It is not that God has moved. It is not that God doesn't care. It's not that God doesn't love. It's that we are starting to doubt because we still think it should be like this, God. Well, beloved, read the Bible and tell that to basically everybody in it, up to and including, most of all, Jesus himself. This happens to all of us, or is happening to us, or has happened to us that we question and we, we wonder. For a preacher, right, for John the Baptist, God calls preachers, gives them the power to bestow the gospel from the word. For every believer, though, God gives us new life, gives us his spirit, calls us, commands us to submit to his word. And what comes out of John the Baptist here is a question about whether or not Jesus really is the Messiah. Maybe there's another one, because this one is not listening to me. This one is not meeting my needs. He's involved in other stuff that does not seem remotely practical, given where I, his faithful servant, am sitting. John thinks it's still Advent now. And what we're commemorating, we're not, that's not a knock on us celebrating Advent. I'm saying John is thinking that we're still waiting now on the Messiah to come. Why? Why, is, why does John think now that maybe, maybe I pointed out the wrong guy and we're still waiting actually for the Messiah to come because he doesn't feel the gospel inside? It, it's, it's not informing him. Something else is telling John what the truth is. Something else is telling him the way things should be, but it's not the gospel. If we're still waiting for something, and of course waiting takes time, all we can do then is our best until the time comes, like John the Baptist had been doing. So he's sitting in prison wondering if he's dotted all the I's, if he's crossed all the T's, maybe he has failed, maybe he should have done more preparation, baptized more people, went to more places. He knows he's probably not going to get out of there, so he's thinking... What does God want me to do now? Apparently I've failed somewhere. Something's off because I'm in prison. Is there more I need to do so that the promise will actually come? His message was repentance. So maybe it's that. Maybe John needs to do some more repenting and get himself more prepared. And then the real Messiah will come. God hasn't necessarily forgotten him, but maybe this is a lesson. and He's supposed to use his time in prison more wisely. So while he's waiting, he's going to make himself more ready for the Messiah because it doesn't look like Jesus is the one. Surely he's not the one if his followers are being oppressed like he is. The majority of the rabbis in Israel at that time didn't believe, or one of the reasons they didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah was precisely that reason. They believed that when he was here, you would know it because you wouldn't feel like you were waiting anymore. And whatever Jesus was doing, it was not fulfilling the expectations of Israel for what the Messiah would be like. So John the Baptist, in a sense here, represents a question from the majority of the people, a sentiment from them. Because when the Messiah came, all this injustice would stop. All this suffering and inequality and inequity, it would be over. And when the kingdom that actually brings justice arrived, you would see it and you would feel it. And that's how you would know it was the Messiah. Now John is discovering something, isn't he? Forgiveness has come by the power of the Messiah, but it must be received by faith. And faith does not rest on what it sees 
or what it feels. In fact, what faith usually sees and feels is the opposite of what God says is true. So we say to ourselves, maybe when we're suffering like this, what John did, do I need to add something here? Do I need to be doing something more? Maybe if I did more, then the blessings would come. Then I'd have more faith. Then I'd have more confidence and hope and joy. And then we start thinking, we start creating all these unbiblical categories. I think God is trying to get me to use my time more wisely, to do more things, because the gospel, forgiveness, I don't actually have that yet. I'm not actually justified. If I was justified, my life would be blessed. If I was right with God, my life would be perfect. We never say that, but that's what we want. That's what we want. Don't let us not fool ourselves. We will settle for nothing less than absolute perfection from everybody else. John wants to go back to Jesus through his disciples, of course, and ask him if the gospel has actually arrived or not, because he doesn't see it and he doesn't feel it. So apparently, we need to take note here. What Jesus brings won't be known because you can see it or feel it. That's not how it works. And God never promised that is how it would work. We, we, we need to understand what the prophets were saying, what Jesus is doing. That's a very hard thing to learn. It's a very hard pill to swallow. I haven't swallowed that pill yet. Between how it is and how I think it should be. It causes all kinds of questions. John had heard it. He knows what the promise is. For Jesus Christ to say that, look, there is no one up to this point in the world greater than that man that's sitting in prison right now. Jesus said that of John the Baptist. He knows what the promise is, but the promise looks pretty worthless. What looks real, what looks powerful, what looks like it has control are the prison bars. The sentry walking back and forth in front of his cell. The smells of unsanitary prison. That's what it feels like is running John's life. Because he can see it and smell it. Probably taste it. Feel it. That's what feels strong. That's what feels real. All that injustice and suffering and oppression. That feels real. The, the king of that empire reigns over John. Not the Messiah. The Messiah is out there healing random people. Like what? what is he doing? Jesus is out here saving people from their sins. Does he not know they don't have enough food in Africa? Right? So are you the one, or should we still be waiting and getting ready? Now, only Jesus can give the response Jesus does, and it's perfect. The only answer for a preacher, apparently, is that you preach to him while he's in prison. Because right now, he isn't a preacher, he's a prisoner. And Jesus knows this preacher is on the edge of not believing anymore. It doesn't trust that he's going to deliver something to him while he's sitting in prison since he's suffering oppression unjustly. Well, what is it? Right? Maybe if I send them to ask Jesus if he's the one, he'll remember, oh, that's right, John is in jail. I need to do something about this. He forgot about me. He's letting me rot so that he can be more popular than me. I'm, I wonder if all that is... Now, Jesus could have said here, 
and been totally justified. You go back and tell John he's a lousy prophet. You go back and tell that man he doesn't know the word like he should. You tell him, I, I, I did all this stuff and you're not holding on to your faith anymore. I'm going to burn you like chaff. But instead, Jesus is going to make John's disciples preach to him and tell him what they hear and see. Since John is in prison, Jesus gives them both what can be heard and what can be seen. He quotes the Old Testament. It's all over this text. Psalm 146, Isaiah 35, Malachi 3. It's all here. And he sends preachers back to John the Baptist. How, what do you, on a scale of one to ten, one being not at all and ten being more than anything in the world, how much do you think John was in the mood for a sermon? How many of you think that when he saw his disciples coming back, he was like, he was like, man, I, I hope I get a sermon. I hope I get a proclamation of what he's doing that I don't understand anyway. I certainly hope he doesn't get me out of jail. I want to hear a sermon, right? So we start to think like that when we're suffering. Well, what do I need to go to church and listen to the word for? I, I know all that stuff. That's not what I need. Beloved, it is always, always what we need. It's the only permanent thing in this cosmos. The word of Almighty God. Look at four. And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. John, I am the one. Listen. Hear what I'm doing. And is it, at a first glance, wouldn't verse 5 be like a litany of what the social justice warrior would be after? There it is, right there. You, uh, blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. And so if you want, you can just insert group A, group B into that. you like, see, they're, they're, Jesus is raising them out of the depths of their oppression and their suffering, most of which has been poured out on them unfairly, and so that's what we should be doing. If the kingdom where Jesus says, or, or is the kingdom where Jesus says, if you're suffering unjustly in this world, like John is in prison, if you haven't gotten what you deserved in life, but have gotten a raw deal instead, I'm here to make up for all of it and, and even the scales. You didn't get what you deserved in life, you got a raw deal, well I'm, I'm going to take care of it. That's what I'm all about. I'm here to make justice equitable. The, the justification of sinners is like a picture of what I'm going to do in society as a whole. And so those who have lost out on justice on earth will get what's been taken from them and denied them from Jesus. That's what the world thinks justice is. And that's all justice is. It's all attached to equity and equality under the law. So if that's not there, if that's not happening, if we don't see and feel and hear that in society, in our own lives, Jesus might as well be somebody else. Maybe we need another Messiah. That is justice in the world. Even it all out, make it fair, make it equal, or there's not justice according to the law. The law, it, it always seeks to give equity by making up for past mistakes. What else can it do? Or 
punishing for current mistakes. And then supposedly, once you've done that, once you've made the proper people pay enough, then you have equity. And now you can say, Jesus, thank you because your priorities are straight and you made everything equal and everything right. Because if you don't do right by me, you aren't right. Jesus takes Isaiah 61, gives it to John the Baptist, exactly how it was given to Isaiah in verse 5. And and think, you know, the blind have been robbed of something. What? Sight. So what does Jesus do? Give them sight back. That's why. The law robbed lame people of the ability to walk. The, the, The universe, the circumstances robbed the lame of the ability to walk. So if Jesus comes, what do they get? The ability to walk. That's why he healed people. The deaf were robbed of hearing, so they get hearing. The dead, the most severely mistreated by the law, by power, they get life. So it seems like Jesus is saying, at a first glance, what I do is make everything on the earth better and give back to you all that's been taken from you unjustly. Now, if that's what Jesus was saying, why doesn't John believe then that he's the one? If that's what the promises were, that that's how the world was going to look the moment the Messiah came, why is John doubting him? He's clearly doing the actual work of the gospel. Beloved, what was the healing ministry of Jesus actually about? What do all these, the poor, the suffering, what do they get in verse 5? What do they get? Why should John the Baptist believe Jesus is the one? Well, ideally, what do the poor need as we see it? They need the equitable distribution of resources. They need to get, even if they have to take. That's what would be fair. That's what would be just what has been taken away from them. And even if they don't become more wealthy than everyone else, they at least deserve to have as much as everybody else has. Or Jesus isn't a good Messiah. God is unfair. God is not loving. God is not just. But instead, in verse 5, the poor have good news preached to them? The poor get what John the Baptist gets in prison? A sermon? In the end, those who have been robbed of their wealth apparently get nothing but a sermon. They get a message delivered to them. And in John the Baptist's case, it's a second-hand sermon. He doesn't even hear it from Jesus himself, but from his disciples. But the message is not, sit tight. I'm handling it. I'll be there soon. We'll get you freed in the next 48 hours. They probably didn't read you your Miranda rights or anything like that. Just hold still. We'll get to you soon. The message is not that he will get rectification. It's not that he'll get justice according to the law. That's not the good news. That's not the good news. It never has been. Oh, it would be nice. And I'm not making light of people that would be imprisoned unjustly. That's not my point this morning. And that happens all the time. In a world that has fallen and sinful, how can it not? That means that when Jesus talks about justification, He's not talking about something according to the law. It's not going to equalize what has been previously taken. Instead, it's going to give us a sermon And in that sermon, we don't get the law. We don't get fair and just and right. We get the gospel. The one that saves on the back of the righteous other 
who He punishes in our stead as sinners, knows something about justice that we don't. If that's the way we get saved, we have to stop thinking that God is all about evening the playing field and making everything look right and fair. If that's the case, you don't punish Jesus for my sin. That actually upends the whole essence of the gospel. We live because of an unfair trade, beloved. Now, what did John think he needed when he was sitting in prison being unjustly oppressed? If you were a prisoner right now, what would you think you needed from God? What would I think? Anything other than being in prison, right? You don't have to put me in a mansion, God, or at least get me out of here. I'm I'm here for no reason. What did I do but follow you and look at me? Notice what Jesus is saying there in verses 7 to 11. Notice where he goes here. This This is amazing, right? It's a little obvious and redundant and silly to say Jesus is amazing, but Jesus is amazing. Okay? Well, he says to the people, what did you think you went out to see when you went out to hear John the Baptist, the prophet? Look at what he wore. You, you look at what he ate. You, you know what that is. He, he's, that's Elijah. And you see Isaiah there and you see Malachi there. Only this prophet didn't say what they did. That, this prophet didn't say he's coming. He's coming. This man you went out to see used his hand and pointed at me and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's here. That's what John gets. That's what made him so great. The ministry he had. He's here, everybody. The promised one has come. He's come. God has kept his promise. Our warfare is over. Rejoicing has come. You hear that? they, They look around and they see oppression from Rome and war all around the world. How... How could it be that the Messiah is here? Because we don't understand how God speaks. And it isn't God playing word games. We just don't listen. You're, you're hearing Jesus say this about him and you're like, yeah, but he, he's in prison. Rome has him. He's under the authority of Rome now. Jesus says, don't think that means I'm not the one. Don't think that means I'm not the one. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and vanishes. How much do you need money? How much do you need equity? How much do you really need all those things that you would doubt me over? I came to save you. In this world, by these laws, Jesus could say, my prophets, do you know what happens to them here? They go to prison. They get killed in between the altar, like Zechariah did. That's what happens to them. Messiah's here, or they get crucified. They get crucified here. I have not come to give you what is only going to pass away after I give it to you no matter how much of it you get. Instead, I have come to set you actually free. So John is going to stay in prison and he's going to lose his head and gain everything. Beloved, this is what preachers are for. To proclaim that 
forgiveness of sins has come. That the justification of the ungodly in heaven has been accomplished. This is what the church is for. The sermon. The good news. The Lamb of God who takes away your sin has come. And then we go to the world telling them what? What we have seen and heard in this and in one another. Whether they're in prison or skid row or addicted to something, which is a prison that people probably can't get out of, they need mercy. Maybe they're caught up in lust or fornication or adultery or homosexuality or gender confusion. Maybe this is their prison or the love of money or the victims of horrible oppression. This is what we have to give. A sermon. Now, that does not mean that we don't ever literally feed the hungry. Of course we should and must. It doesn't mean that we don't give water to the thirsty or serve and help the poor or maybe even provide job training for people or support and set up programs in communities that help meet physical needs of those who are genuinely suffering or genuinely oppressed. Praise God for all that. I'm not saying for a second we don't need to worry about that. Oh, we do. But it's not the main thing. There are organizations that do all of that that have nothing to do with Jesus. We don't do those things because Jesus came to set up heaven on earth from earth. That's not why we do that stuff. That's all secondary. That's what's secondary. We do it not because our Savior doesn't know what the real needs are, but because our Savior knows our deepest need will never be provided by the world. We think that if we get justice here, we've finally been justified and have justice. And beloved, this world is kindling for the wrath of God. And when I'm speaking like this, this morning, a pastor in my suit, and I have a nice home, and all these things that so many other people would call privilege, right? That's not why I'm allowed to speak like this or would speak like this because I'm so privileged I have rose-colored glasses on and see the world a certain way. And if I was really... Tell some poor Appalachian kids that they have privilege. Right? Tell them that, hey, you're privileged. You, you shouldn't be living like this. You could change your circumstances on a dime if you wanted. Tell them that. Tell some little boy you know, that doesn't have shoes that he's privileged. That, that nothing is fair. Beloved, we're all poor in the sight of God. God sees us. And so He doesn't set us up with some program that depends on people and the kindness of people to sustain. Jesus is here because if you leave justice in our hands, we'll use it to destroy people. And don't think the church is capable of bringing all that to the world. We fight over stuff in here that doesn't even matter. We're not called to heal the world like that. We're called to proclaim the same message that saved us when we are no better than anyone else. Jesus sends us to the poor with provision, yes, so that they can listen to the good news and hear it. Because the good news is not that earth is going to become equitable for everyone. This world is cursed. It's been subjected to futility and death. Everything in this creation, including its wealth and its equity, is Dying. 
The, the, the most good we can do is to love the people Jesus has put right in front of us, our neighbors, those in our community. We, we can't carry the weight of the world on our shoulders. Jesus said the poor we will always have with us. Justice like that is not coming to earth. And since it's not, praise God, thank God, we have a gospel that transcends this earth and gets us out from underneath the sun where it's scorching us with its heat and unfairness. If Jesus came to get us all to the same place socially and economically without addressing our need for justification before God, then we might ask for another one. So we go to those in prison, the ones literally incarcerated. Yes, we go to them. We serve them. Yes. But also the ones that don't know they're in prison. To the law. But that Christ has come to set them free, whether they're in prison or not. Verse 11. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Right, because John the Baptist wasn't Jesus. Under the era of the law, no one was greater than the last prophet, John the Baptist. But in the kingdom, Jesus brings the Messiah, the greatest, greater than the law itself. What did he become for us? The least. The least. That's how it works. We don't get exalted on the earth. We get lowered on the earth. In this world, the gospel of Jesus means you lose. He became the least that we might gain everything. Not of this world. Eternity. Now, therefore, we preach Christ crucified, but not as a law. So we don't say to the poor, for example, what you're going to get because Jesus has come is wealth. That will be heaven for you. Instead, we say, you're going to get Jesus Christ, no matter whether you get wealth in this world or not. And what he says to you is, I forgive you. I forgive you. We're the ones through whom the word of forgiveness comes, beloved. And what happens to us once we've given the word of forgiveness in this world? What happens when as unworthy servants we've only done what is our duty in this life? Well, we go to jail. We get detained. That might happen. It's happening to a lot of our brothers and sisters around the world right now. Maybe we die. Nevertheless, what Jesus says to us is this, don't worry. Your hope is not in social justice. Your hope is not in rectification according to the law for everything that you've lost. That may come for you in this world. It may not. But that's not why I came. That's not why you should be rejoicing that I'm here. What you're going to get is the promise given by me who tells us you are no longer waiting. You know, you, There's nothing you need to do to make me come to you. And the reason why is that I am here and I've spoken to you this word that makes you clean. I've forgiven you of all your sins. It's not what you see in prison or what you feel when suffering or when you're struggling or losing. It's the promise that I will keep eternal life and this will be much greater. This text the message of this text is about giving Christ and our need to hear the promise for ourselves all the time. All that other stuff is a matter of the law. All that stuff is not the fruit of the gospel either. The fruit of the gospel is the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. So this morning we rejoice because forgiveness has come for the oppressed and for the oppressor. Glory to God. And if that's true, John didn't need his head anymore anyway. 
Glory be to Christ.